0: All right, now our study is going to be counseling from the book of 3 John. Not from John 3, but the book of 3 John. 3 John is one of those little books of the New Testament. In fact, it's the smallest book in the New Testament by count, word count and verse count and so on. It's one of those little books that we turn over on our way from 1 John to the book of Revelation and tend to ignore along with second John and Jude and uh, it sort of gets short shrift from many of us but third John is a book full of many different things that can be of significance to us and one of the ways in which third John can be of significance is in terms of what it can tell us about counseling indeed counseling that failed counseling that failed and what may be done when counseling fails so we're going to look at a counseling failure in the book of third john that at least up to the point where the book is written there is failure but uh, where something is going to be done to rectify that situation so that there will be some kind of outcome even from that failure going beyond the point at which the book is written. Now, you may ask why 3rd John. I've begun to give you some reasons. Let me give you a couple more. Sometimes the very best things come in small packages. As every girl knows who looks forward to that little one inch by one inch by one inch box uh, in which is that sparkler that she puts on her uh, third finger left hand, uh, that engagement ring which she looks forward to is uh, a marvelous thing and she wouldn't prefer to have something, prefer to have anything in a box uh, 50 times the size uh, as much as she would prefer to have that small good thing in a small package. Well, Third John is something like that. I think it's a real gem. It's a gem for many things. In my opinion, it has one of the best missionary messages of any book of the New Testament. Certainly the best message for the person who stays at home. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, and yet we're not going to emphasize that point here today. And yet I've never heard anyone preach a missionary message from the book except me. And uh, I get sick and tired of hearing that one. But uh, this book is just loaded with good material. So I want to commend to you not just Third John, but all these small and often neglected books of the Bible, which sometimes... We neglect to our uh, 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 harm and the harm of our people. Now, this is a book written in a crisis counseling situation. It has to do with the resolution of conflict in the church. It deals with counseling uh, in terms of authority in counseling. In a sense, therefore, this is the balance to what has been coming first in our uh, program in which Mr. Pallison is talking about peer counseling and talking about the uh, level of counseling that has to do with uh, all of us on a similar level in some regards who are members of the Church of Christ. But there is another level to counseling, which he called professional, and uh, I guess that's a good word if you understand who the professional is. God's professional is the pastor and the elders of the church. And that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the problem of authority in counseling as we look at this matter. And so uh, here's a book written in a crisis counseling situation having to do with the resolution of conflict in the church, having to do with the authority of Christ given through the ministers, to the ministers of the church who are exercising that authority of Christ, and what happens when that authority is rejected. What happens when that authority is turned aside? What happens when somebody says, yeah, that's what you say, but I don't care, and goes his own way? So we have a counseling crisis situation in 3 John, and we have an authority situation in 3 John, and we have a case that up to the point where we meet it has failure, counseling failure built into it. So we're looking at something a little different perhaps a little exciting to some of you who are always looking at counseling from a different perspective, perhaps, that may get into some things that we need to, to look at uh, for the first time. Now, this letter is a small letter, which is obvious. All the, uh, these little letters that are so small are probably, Second uh, John, Third John, uh, uh, Jude even, and uh, Philemon, are probably written on one piece of papyrus they're probably uh, their size is probably determined by that you know today chapters are going to be a little different in books they're going to be more uniform than they used to be because of disks computer disks and uh, word processing disks which will hold just so much uh, before they're filled and people are going to kind of conform their chapters to the disk well the same thing is true here in those days Uh, often people said what they had to say on a piece of papyrus and shot it off without sticking a second piece on and so the papyrus in a sense limited uh, how much you were going to say. And in these instances we have one piece of papyrus probably and we have a short stopgap note written in a crisis situation to meet that situation at least temporarily until something more could be done. Here in Second John, we read that John says, I have much more to write, and I'm going to come and see you and talk about those matters. I can't write it all here at this time. And in Third John, we have much the same uh, kind of approach, where he says, uh, I have many more things to say to you, but I want to talk mouth to mouth. It says face to face in the English translations, literally in the Greek it says mouth to mouth. You don't talk with faces you talk with mouths they're a little more accurate than we are at any rate uh, here it is Uh, one sheet stopgap measure shot off quickly somebody was headed that way stick it in his hand quickly do something about the circumstance but recognize in the letter itself often that much more needs to be done that cannot be done through this quick little letter so that's the kind of thing that we're looking at in 3 John. Quickie counseling, counseling that is only temporary, temporary counseling uh, of someone with reference to matters where counseling of someone else had failed and where a final resolution of the matter needs to be made face-to-face later on. So here is a new kind of milieu about which we have not said much in the past, if anything, in our counseling sessions and in our, uh, in our teaching sessions and certainly in this series in the June Institute. Trying to give you background. A crisis demands action, but usually not full action or definitive action. Something has to be done in a crisis. Something has to be done right away because people's adrenaline is flowing. In a crisis, people are hyped up. In a crisis, people are ready for action. In a crisis, people have... Uh, this souping up situation that must be released somewhere. And if there is no direction, authoritative direction from God given to those people, the tendency will be to do something wrong to release that energy in ways that will be harmful, to release that energy in ways that may not even be well thought through, in ways that may be destructive, that the person, once he comes down off of his his heights, will look at it and say, what a tragedy, why did I do something like that? And so here is a crisis situation, and a letter sent to meet that situation temporarily, and giving direction, giving authoritative directions from God directions that can be carried out, directions that uh, will help in this situation so that the energy which is mobilized may be used in a profitable and constructive way according to the principles of God. Not only that, in a crisis situation, people need understanding of some sort. That is, they need to understand the crisis. They need to understand what's going on. They need to understand as far as they're able. They need to understand how they relate to it, what they Uh, must think about it, what kind of attitudes that they must take, how they must uh, stand over against the people who are involved in the crisis, because crises largely have to do with people. Even when natural disasters take place and uh, uh, you have a mudslide and a house goes down, or you have a tornado and the the house gets uh, carried off, even though it's a natural disaster, nevertheless, the thing that becomes difficult afterwards is what you do with the people, how you pay off the building and who's going to take care of you and where you're going to go and what they're demanding of you and what the government comes around and tells you and how you respond to them and so on. So the real crisis is always with the people involved. And so a crisis letter must also take up those kinds of matters. Well, you can't do everything on one sheet of papyrus in debt so here we get little bits and pieces of each of these kinds of things thrown together, and we get something of how to handle a crisis, particularly where something has gone wrong, uh, even though you've made a previous attempt to handle it. Now, in the midst of this unresolved problem, which is the subject of the book of Third John, John looks back, he looks ahead, and he looks at the present, and he discusses all three perspectives so as to give Gaius, the man to whom he's writing, and the others who are represented in Gaius's circle, uh, to whom Gaius would, with whom Gaius would uh, uh, to whom Gaius would, would uh, give this material, and uh, to whom he would direct the principles that John teaches him, to give him some perspective in where he stands in relationship to all these uh, matters. So it's what's going on now. What are you doing? What have you done about it already? And what are you going to have to do in the future about this situation? All those matters are taken up also in this little book. So, what we've got is a small book, a gem, however, of information. A book that is more suggestive in some ways than it is explicit, though explicit, quite explicit in others. And so we're going to look sometimes at explicit material, and other times we're going to look at this less explicit material where suggestions are made and we're going to have to follow the suggestions out in other passages of Scripture to get them more clearly in, in, in focus, to see all of what John was suggesting that would come to Gaius's mind as he made just the mere suggestion itself. <coughs> so then, we have chosen 3 John because of this dynamic, common-to-counseling situation and because it is so often neglected in thought. I hope, therefore, that uh, uh, you will find this book and the study of it A very profitable and exciting thing as i have as i've looked at it and tried to prepare for this there's also in the book much about successful christian living which of course is the goal of all counseling activity we don't counsel unbelievers we evangelize them we call it pre-counseling to let them know that counseling has not yet begun because counseling is a matter of changing a person from the inside out and therefore it's a matter of sanctification and no unbeliever can be sanctified he needs to be justified first Needs to be regenerated, justified, so that he can grow in grace. But uh, because it's a matter of sanctification, uh, we don't counsel unbelievers. But this is has nothing to do with unbelievers as such. This has to do uh, around the edges with successful Christian living, uh, which is, of course, the goal of all counseling activity. Therefore, now we want to begin with something of an overview of the book, just to get us in shape here. There is in this book, uh, giving an outline to it, these particular things. An introduction in verse 1, and then the body of the book, uh, containing three parts, verses 2 through 8, which is a commendation of Gaius, verses 9 and 10, a condemnation of Diotrephes, and verses 11 and 12, a commendation of Demetrius. And as you go on, you'll notice that there's a conclusion, a very significant one, just like the significant introduction in verse 1, in verses 13 and 14. The subject, interestingly enough, of this book and also of 2 John is hospitality. In 2 John, hospitality to false teachers, cultic teachers, is condemned. In 3 John, hospitality to believing teachers is commended and commanded so that uh, there is an interesting and uh, well-balanced presentation of this matter of hospitality which becomes the occasion for this counseling uh, uh, discussion uh, that we find in the in the book of uh, <clears throat> second John books of second John and third John now to put it another way we might say that here is the book you've got two mountain peaks and between every two mountain peaks that stand next to each other you must have some kind of a valve. i mean that you know that uh, stands to reason even if it's not as deep as this when there's got to be something or you don't have peaks there's just one peak if you don't have that. So if you think about 3 John, three people, three main sections to the book, and two of these persons as being mountaintop Christians, so to speak, and one being a swampy-type Christian down below. You've got the book of 3 John. Here's a mountain peak man. Gaius is our first mountain man. And then our swamp is Diotrephes. And our second mountain man is Demetrius. The book revolves around these three persons and what John says to them and about them and what he says with reference to them in relationship to one another and to God. So draw your little picture if you want and on we go. <coughs> now we're going to just keep the book of Third John in front of you according whichever way you prefer to look at it. You can either look at the Greek or you can look at the English. you got it all there. And uh, we we'll just let you look whichever way you want to look. And you can look with one eye on one and the other eye on the other. And if there's anybody like that, I'll just turn it that way for you. But uh, this is the book of Third John. You see, it's handy enough to get on one sheet of, uh, uh, not only on one piece of papyrus, but in English it's easy enough, and, along with Greek, uh, to get all one uh, of these goodies that we have here, uh, acetate sheet. So that makes it very handy to look at. We can keep looking at one or the other as you care to. Anybody like to come down further, if that's not blown up enough for you and you'd like to look at it, you're perfectly welcome to do so. Wander down here, there are plenty of seats along here, a whole row down there, a whole row over here. Now we begin in the book of Third John with that introduction, verse 1. And we're going to spend some time with it, because the introduction is rather important. First of all, notice in this introduction who writes. John's name, as such, does not appear. He calls himself the Elder. I'm not going to get into critical discussions, because we haven't time for that, as to whether John really wrote this, and if so, what John, and so on. I'm assuming, for the sake of our discussion, this is John the Apostle, and uh, there are... Very good arguments for that, but we haven't time to get in them here. He calls himself presbyteros, ha presbyteros. Those are the first two words up there in Greek, the elder. Presbyter means elder, and of course presbyteros is the word from which presbyter or elder come. Now, the word presbyteros or elder is used in two ways in the Bible. It's used sometimes officially. And it's used sometimes uh, informally, in a non-official sense. It's possible that John here was using uh, the, the word in the official sense. But it's not probable, because he uses this same uh, expression in Second John. And in both places, he writes to very close friends. He's not writing to somebody where he has to exercise his authority. He's not writing to somebody who doubts or questions what he has to say. He's writing to people who have been doing the right thing, as we shall see here, and if you examine 2 John, you'll see the same thing. So probably, he is using the word here, or in all likelihood, he is using the word here in the informal sense of the word. Not that he couldn't exercise his formal use of the word, but uh, there would be no need to in relationship to the subjects uh, or the recipients of the letter. Probably John then is talking here about his old age. John is saying, I am writing to you as the old man, the old one, the elderly statesman. At the time when he's writing, we don't know the exact date, there seems to be reason to believe that he is the last living apostle, that all the rest have gone their way. John is a very young man, knew the Lord, he was close to him. The Lord went back to uh, his, his throne and was exalted as man to the throne of heaven. But John walked with his Lord as the Spirit of God came throughout all those years, not only when he was on earth, but when he returned in the person of the Spirit of God to dwell within John. When he said, I will send you another comforter or counselor or assistant of the same kind that I have been. So in a sense... Uh, The Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ manifested to each believer in a day in which he could not be with each one in a bodily way. The Holy Spirit then as John walked with Christ uh, and the Holy Spirit in that intimate relationship over these long years did many things in John's life. John was matured. John was changed. John learned many things. John became a wise old man. Not only a man who had received direct revelation from God and who was an apostle and had the special authority of the apostleship, but he was a man who in exercising that apostleship and becoming an elder in the church of Jesus Christ had weathered many crises like this one. He was a man who knew what to do in a crisis. He was not some kind of a green seminary student who was still dripping from beneath the armpits. He was, a, he was an old, uh, wise man of God. And that's what I think we're to read in this word, Presbyter, the elder. He's writing out of all that background, all those years with his Lord, writing out of that wisdom, and bringing all that to bear upon this situation. So he appeals to Gaius as one who has all those years of information and experience. Listen to me, therefore. Listen to what I have to say out of all that background. Uh, here is what one writer says, incidentally, about this matter, speaking of John as he writes in First John, where also, along with Second John and Third John, these letters were written at the end of his life. We read these words in Lawler, Brendan Lawler, in uh, <clears throat> his book, The Epistles in Focus. He says, at first reading of St. John's first epistle, we find it difficult to follow the apostles' trend of thought. He's writing now about First John. His style of composition seems to be wanting in consecutiveness, and yet he succeeds in imprinting many telling sentences indelibly on the reader's memory. For example, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and this is the victory that overcomes the world our faith. Saint. John writes, he says, as an old man speaks. Now that's an interesting observation. He says he expresses his favorite thoughts and deepest convictions briefly without argument or elaboration. He has apparently been meditating on the great truths of Christianity so constantly for 60 or 70 years that now their mere statement is full of meaning for him. So what he's saying is that as you read John in 1st John 2nd John or 3rd John you find a great deal of material packed tightly into one space even in a word sometimes or a phrase or a sentence. It's uh, it's the difference between hard candy and soft candy. You take a, a peppermint patty and you take a chaw of that peppermint patty and it's very flavorful and delicious and you Chew it up and swallow it, and two or three more, and it's gone. Just a little bit of the flavor lingers for just a little while. But you get a piece of hard candy, and you've got to suck on it. Turn it over with your tongue and get at it from another angle. Chew a little bit gently off of one edge so that you don't bust your fillings. Work on it a little more, and suck, and work, and suck, and keep turning it around from all directions to get everything out of it. Why, it lasts, you see. That's what he's saying here, and that's true. John doesn't write just like some neophyte who puts everything he knows into about 20 sentences. He writes like a man who has so much to say. So much to say. And he has so little space and time in which to say it. So he economizes and he packs things into concepts or into phrases that come with great impact. And we have to spend time on them. We have to suck on them to get everything out of them that he has packed into them. That's the way a proverb is. It's very different from an extended piece of uh, of writing such as a narrative. A proverb has so much of life over many years and through many people's experiences with God packed tightly into that one proverb. John almost writes letters like he was writing proverbs is what this man is saying. So often it comes down to a phrase like, uh, or a statement, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. There's a whole theology of sanctification built in that. You could argue for weeks about many of the aspects of that statement, and people have argued for years and lifetimes about it. And so get that in mind as we look at John. He goes, Lawler goes on to say, as we read his unlinked, pithy sentences, we fancy we can hear his voice speaking slowly and with great earnestness. For my part, he says, this epistle reminds me of the spiritual exhortations of a certain holy man who had been all of his life long a man of prayer. Holiness consists in being in a state of grace, he would say, or it is impossible to do any good at all without prayer. And from his manner and tone of voice, it was obvious that such statements summarized for him the prayerful ponderings of a lifetime. All right, so in John the presbyteros, John the Elder. We have this wealth of experience in living Christ's way that he brings to bear upon the problems before us. Of course, there's no way that a young man on his first case can have all of that himself in his own experience. He must, however, be careful to read those who have had such experience. He must be careful to spend hours and time watching and listening to those who have spent time with their Lord, serving him in counseling. If he wants to catch up and to gain from what they have learned from their experience, while he's gaining the experience himself. Now, it's true that God's Word has all that's necessary, and the youngest, greenest neophyte with no experience and nobody to lean on can take that Word and by the power of the Spirit use it. But there's also the place for the fathers that John himself points out in his first letter. He talks about the fathers and the young men. And there is an unbeatable combination. And when he speaks about the young men, he speaks about their strength and their ability to do things, to act, to be decisive, to create some kind of of response in the church. When he speaks about the fathers, he speaks about their knowledge and their wisdom and all they've known from the past. And together, what he's telling us is that there is an unbeatable combination. The strength and youth and zeal of the young men who want to get out there and get the job done and who can do it. And the wisdom of the fathers combined is what we really see as the ideal in the church. So here's the presbyteros speaking to a younger man, Gaius, and we see that combination coming to bear. So there is a place for age and for experience and for all of that in counseling. And John's making the point. He's making just that point by calling himself the presbyteros. He's making the point that I've got something to say about this situation, listen to me, because I have walked many years with the Lord and have learned many things from him. And we should respect age. Our society doesn't respect it. It respects youth. It holds youth forth as the ideal. It holds youth forward as the goal. Every woman wants to look younger. Every man wants to look macho. Uh, This is not the way the Bible looks at old age. The older I get, the more I realize that, fact. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> however it's not just age in and of itself the Bible teaches that we are to respect the hoary head if it is found in the way of righteousness that's that important qualification here was the hoary head and beard found in the way of righteousness and uh, that's what John is calling attention to as he begins all right what does the old man have to say in this letter that's what we begin to look at now Our press Peter asks Gaio to Agapeto, to Gaius the beloved one, or to the dear Gaius, my dear friend, which we would probably say in our time. We have no exact equivalent of this word beloved. You can't get away with the word beloved anymore. It's just not part of our, our modern vocabulary. You can only use it in poetry. Uh, Macedonia, Derby, and Corinth, according to the Bible, uh, had a Gaius in each of those places. Possibly this is the same Gaius as one of those Gaiuses. But the name Gaius was the most common name in the Roman Empire. It was exactly like our word Smith. Indeed, it was even more like Smith than our word Smith. Because in the law books, where you had a sample, for example, of a contract where a person would sign his name and we would write John Doe and Richard Rowe, they wrote Gaius. That was the name they used because it was the most common name that there was. It's exactly like our name, George. Let George do it. That's what they would say in Rome. Let Gaius do it. They used that same kind of expression when they spoke of so-and-so. Instead of saying so-and-so as we would, or George, they would say Gaius. Let so-and-so do it. Let Gaius do it. So really, all we know about Gaius for sure, this Gaius, is what we learn here. We're not going to be able in any way to identify him with any of the other three Gaiuses and uh, it's altogether possible indeed likely that he is not uh, to be identified with any of the other three Gaiuses and yet we learn a great deal about this man Gaius from this letter alone we saw that he was a mountain peak Christian, a mountain man in this letter. Now John calls him Gaius the beloved, to the his dear friend, his very very warm, close This certainly starts out the letter in the right atmosphere, an atmosphere for the richest, deepest, warmest kind of counseling. Uh, Certainly between the two of them there was already an understanding. So we shall see later John had led Gaius to faith in Christ. There was the warmth of that kind of relationship built into this. In addition, there was the warmth of just Christian fellowship. Thirdly, there was the warmth of all those obedient acts that Gaius had committed that we began to see, that we'll begin to see as we look further into the book. John speaks of him in the absolutely most endearing and warmest terms possible. Now, it's nice if counseling can begin on that kind of basis, but it's not absolutely essential. It is not essential at all. It's uh, the cherry on top of the whipped cream, but you don't need whipped cream either, because there are many situations where you're not in that greatest relationship with people, or where you have no relationship whatsoever with them prior to the time of counseling them where counseling must take place and will take place in the providence of God and uh, regardless of relationships you must plow ahead but where you can have this kind of relationship to begin with it certainly does help and much can be presupposed and is in this letter one thing I want you to notice however in this appellation of Gaius where he calls him to Agapeto, the beloved one his dear friend that John is not afraid to express his love now I'll grant you that an old saint can do this better than some of the younger saints particularly with the women in the congregation Uh, he can put his arm around them in a way that uh, a younger uh, pastor better not but uh, uh, John I I think always did this in the right way regardless of what age he was Uh, and he had learned over the years to express this love for people to express what he thought about them when it was so warm and so rich. Sometimes we neglect that note. Uh, In our society, to speak of loving someone, especially a man to a man, almost becomes uh, a strange way to speak. I noticed that uh, in this morning's lecture, I don't know whether it stood out to you or not, that Dave said that he loved this person to whom he was speaking. I don't think there was anything sexual about that. I don't think there was anything wrong about that, and I think you didn't feel that there was anything wrong or sexual about that. I think you, you got the, the impression in the way that he said it that it was genuine Christian respect and concern for that person that he had, that this was a dear friend, a very close person, whom he truly loved in this rich sense of that word. And it was, it was good. For me to hear dave say that about somebody in such a way in such a context because i think many of us are afraid afraid to express real love lest somebody take it the wrong way and put a a a sexual connotation uh around it now you have to be careful Uh, you have to be careful that somebody who would do that uh, is not given the opportunity to do that and thereby start causing rumors or something that would hurt your ministry But in the right places, in the right way, phrased in the right circumstances, let's not lose, because of certain kinds of risks that might occur, let's not lose this closeness of our Christian fellowship. It really does do us good to say to one another, that I love you in Christ. And that's what he's saying, whom I love in the truth. He's not just saying whom I love, but he qualifies how he loves it. And we're going to see that that's that's very important. Uh, In fact, we're going to spend some time on that uh, balance between love and truth in just a little while. But for now, let me just note to you that it is not wrong. Said well, said properly, said so that it could never be misunderstood by the the person to whom you're speaking or by others. It, It is not wrong. Indeed, it is very desirable to let others know of your love. There are husbands who don't even let their wives know of their love. You talk to them in counseling, and they say to you, and you say, uh, you know, do you ever tell her uh, that you love love her? Ah, she knows I love her. You know, you've heard husbands say such things as that in counseling, if you've done any counseling at all. And uh, she'll sit there, and she'll say, well, I don't know. How do I know if he doesn't tell me, you know? And on it goes this way. And there is just something to saying it. Here, John doesn't hesitate to say it. He expresses it. And we need to keep that in mind. Now the theme of the letter is expressed in this phrase, whom I love in the truth. Love in the truth. Everything that's said in the rest of this letter falls under that. There is the theme at the outset. Here is one of those pippy sayings of the old man. Here is the old man giving us not just one but probably we ought to count three pieces of hard candy, like three jawbreakers that we've got to suck down to each flavor and each color. Uh, Here we've got love and what he means by it. Here we've got truth and what he means by it. And we've got the phrase love in the truth and what he means by that, which is the real jawbreaker of the whole business. So that uh, before us now we've got some of the most important information that we could digest. And we want to look at that. Whom I love, the beloved one whom I love, Han Ego Agapo and Aletheia. Uh, Here are two elements that are essential to all successful ministry and to all successful counseling, love and truth. The two are not antithetical as some people think. I suppose that's one of the strange ideas of our day that if you are truthful, you can't be loving. Or if you're loving, you can't be truthful. It was the kind of thing Dave Pallison was working on this morning when he talked about the two sides and the middle, two ways that led to death and one that led to life. And he was trying to show that there is a middle way. And the middle way is love in the truth, as John expresses it here. It's not love without truth, and it's not not truth without love. Nor is it love in the truth in some kind of existential tension, some kind of paradoxical thing in which one pulls this way and the other pulls that way, or they both push trying to get past each other, and we have to hold them together in some kind of tension. Uh -uh. But it's genuine balance that we're talking about here, genuine filling out of the one with the other. So much so is uh, is there a necessity for this balance of these two items that you really don't have the one unless you have the other. It's like that old song, you can't have the one without the other. And that's exactly true about these two words. Now, the history of the church could be written, actually a very interesting history it would be too, in terms of the imbalances of these two elements in the church at various periods in history. There have been times when... Truth has been stressed at the expense of love. Inquisitions of various sorts result. Yellow journalism in some of our circles uh, becomes the uh, uh, hour uh, of the day. And if there's no love and only truth, truth at all costs, truth above all, truth and nothing but truth, then what we actually end up with is something less than truth. Because Cold, sterile, stoical, or scholastic orthodoxy is not God's truth. It tells a lie about God. It says that God is cold. It says that God doesn't care. It says that God is only interested in one thing, and that is getting your head straight. It says that God is only interested in maintaining uh, certain facts as facts, regardless of anything else. That's not biblical, because the Bible talks everywhere about walking in the truth. And that's very different than simply being able to be one of those who can talk the truth. Truth is walking in obedience to God's word. And that's when it's fully true and not before. You remember in the great educational commandment which God gave to us, Jesus gave to us right before his ascension, He did not give the Great Commission, by the way, in missionary terms only. They were educational missionary terms. It's really in an educational context in which the Great Commission is given because it was teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And you notice it's not just teaching them so that they can give it back on a test. It's not just teaching them so that they'll have the facts straight in their heads. Going through this crisis in which Gaius probably have been thrown out of the church, as we shall see. He's deeply concerned about Gaius, not just the crisis, but about the man in the crisis. And so all these words are not just thrown in here. They're not just words that we're spending time on for the sake of spending time, but these are words that have importance. They were meant to do something for Gaius. They were designed in order to help him think and to keep straight in this time of crisis. And we ought to learn from that, even the way that John deals with Gaius in this crisis, how he is concerned not just with the crisis and getting everything straightened away, but with this man and how he presents these things to him. It might very well be that he could have gone off half-cocked just trying to solve the crisis and pushed Gaius into some kind of imbalance in his own living as a result. But John is concerned about Gaius growing in this crisis and becoming even a more balanced person as a result of it. So often when people face crises, they react. Instead of responding God's way, they go to the other extreme. And there's this pendulum kind of thinking and living and reacting and so on. But what John's concerned about at the very outset is to keep everything where it belongs. So he sets the balance right up there at the very beginning whom I love in the truth. This balance is before you. We have something here to maintain, this love that we have in the truth. And that's what we've got to make sure at all costs continues, regardless of what happens in this circumstance. Now, there is the other side of the picture, however. Truth is essential, but also love is essential. And the history of the church could also be written in terms of how love has been stressed to the expense of truth and if there's anything in our day that probably characterizes the church more than anything else in general though there are people on the other side of this imbalance as well but the majority of people who err today err in terms of being so soft that truth goes down the drain and they do this in the name of love they call this love Love, at the expense of truth, however, is not God's love. In our day, the seesaw is in this direction, tipping very heavily. For example, in a marriage, so often, we find that uh, everything is conditioned on feeling, which is called love. But you see, feeling is not to be equated with love. Feelings are not the standard of what is love. If I feel real warm and benevolent, then I love. Love isn't some kind of amorphous feeling. Love is obedience to God's commands. That's the thing to see. That love in the Bible has structure. Love and commandments are not antithetical, but indeed, if you love me, keep my commandments, is what Jesus said. And... The commandments of God are summed up as love by Jesus. He sums up everything in the Bible, all the commandments of the Bible, in two statements. Loving God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. So love is defined by the commandments of God. Love has structure in the Bible. It's not just some kind of soggy mess. Love of that sort isn't love. It's some kind of silly, sentimental nonsense which is insipid and soft and soupy. In the Bible, love is a thinking, speaking, and doing thing that conforms to God's will and honors Him and is done in order to please Him. Sometimes in spite of our feelings, we do it because we want to please our God. Even though it's hard to love that enemy, we are told to love him because God commanded it. And if you really want to please your God, you will do that good thing for your enemy. And so love is structured in the Bible. So love and truth then depend upon one another. You can't have the one without the other. And every counselor needs to recognize this. Every counselor needs to have this in his head from the outset as John set it up in the outset of his letter to condition everything that would be said thereafter. Every counselor needs to go into every problem and every situation and particularly every conflict situation in this spirit that there must be love and there must be truth and the two must be in proper relationship and balance to one another. Doctrine and life are inseparable. Doctrine is given for life, and life must be lived in the light of doctrine. The two should never be set against each other, more neology, less theology. (laughs) That's an unbiblical structure. The two must be held in proper biblical balance. Suppose you want to do the loving thing toward your unsaved neighbor. You couldn't tell him the way to heaven without doctrine, God's truth. On the other hand, you won't want to tell him without God's love. You see how the two function together. The physician who loves you most is the one who tells you the truth about your condition, even when he has to say, you have cancer. You really that? That was so good. I mean, Repeat what? That idea that doctors I don't that. remember what I said. It's so, okay. <laughs> on Those kinds of pearls come only once in a lifetime. <laughs> Okay. The physician who loves most then is the one who tells you the truth, even if he has to say, You have cancer. Now, if he says that with a, a glee, that isn't what I'm talking about. <laughs> but if he says that with deep concern, that's love in the truth, you see. Now you can be healed because you know the true condition. And so too a Christian counselor who speaks to a counseling in love tells him his true condition. He doesn't say, Well, I guess this is immaturity. He says this is sin because he knows that there's hope for sin. You know, in marriage where love is small or waning, perhaps it's on the rocks already, truth begins to disappear. Communication at a level of depth breaks down. People talk in a very superficial way to one another. There isn't much truth being communicated, just Some kind of outward agreement to work together at a level which is very superficial. Conversely, in that marriage, one of the ways of restoring it, according to Ephesians 4, 25 and 26, is to bring truth once again to the surface. And then love begins to grow in that soil. And the most loving thing you can do is to tell what you're really thinking, rather than hide it down inside. To speak the truth in love, as Paul says in Ephesians. See how this balance runs everywhere through scripture. How critical, how important it is. Love restores truth, and truth feeds, and love feeds on truth. Love is often starved out of existence for want of truth. And love grows in truthful communication, which is occasioned by and spoken in love. See how the two cycle, circle, how one feeds the other. How the two build each other. How the two are interrelated. How they're really a part of one another. Which comes first, love or truth? Well, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? You're not going to have any eggs without chickens. You're not going to have any chickens without eggs. After God once got, a garden in the, uh, got it going in the garden with a chicken, then it was chickens for eggs and eggs for chickens thereafter. And we're out of the garden, so it's chickens and eggs. Love and truth. No way of avoiding one or the other. God's truth, his revelation in the Bible. His revelation about himself, about ourselves, about our world, is an act of love toward us. Truth is not to be set over against love. It is love when God gave us truth. What else was it? He could have left us to flounder without his word. He could have left us just wandering and wondering. But he didn't. In love, in grace, in mercy, in goodness, in faithfulness to us, he gave us his truth. That was a loving act. And it's an act of love toward God for us to learn to obey his truth and walk in his truth so all counseling will focus on both it will not like some supposed christian counselors pick up albert ellis and make all counseling cognitive a matter of packing heads with facts watch out for that that's the next trend in christian counseling eclecticism the next trend will be cognitive counseling we've been so long and for such a long while wandering around in this morass of feeling-oriented stuff. And there's still plenty of that with us, and it'll still go on for a while. The Christian world is always behind, at least 20 years or so. There are some guys now just beginning to teach Freudianism in Christian circles. True, really, that's true. Look at Dallas Seminary. Hey, Reed. Now, there are other people. There are other people we are just beginning to catch on to the cognitive side. And that will be the great swing and the great reaction from all the feeling-oriented stuff that we're mucking around in now. That'll be the reaction. Let's just get it all right in our heads and then everything will be okay. No, it's got to be both. It's got to be truth in life, truth in the way that we live, truth to observe, teaching to observe, as God puts it. And it's not behavior alone either. It's not skinnerianism. It's not just doing. It's not just acting. It's a matter of really wanting to please God by loving him and loving our neighbor. And the two are always together. The Garden of Eden was a state of truth and love. what it was. He questioned the truth of God which had been spoken to Adam and Eve. Did God say God's word, God's truth was attacked? But he also attacked the love of God. Ah, now wait a minute. God's afraid. That if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. He's got bad motives. He doesn't really love you. He's scared of you. God's word and God's love for them were both attached. Both, you see, were essential to that state. This balance from God reflects God himself. So we must exhibit it as his children if we want to reflect God. And that's the goal of all counseling, to reflect our God in the way that we are and live and what we are. So if we want to counsel others, we have to know how to teach them, and we have to know how to help them observe that teaching or keep that teaching or practice that teaching in daily living. These are the two sides of counseling. Knowing what God says to people and telling them what he says and getting that clear in their heads and then helping them to walk in it. Neither one must be done apart from the other. People who try to counsel others to go this way and never tell them what God says to do or why he says to do it or explain the biblical picture are simply asking them to do it on faith in themselves, not in God. And people who just give them the facts but never give them the how-to leave them to flounder on their own and fail. Counselors then, like John, have to learn how to do both and put them all right up front, put those two things right up front at the beginning of our our counseling so that everybody knows we're gonna stress both those things. There's love here to be stressed and there's truth here to be stressed and every counselee will come in stressing one or the other, usually in imbalance. And we're gonna have to come down hard on this side to pull this one around into balance or come down hard on this side to pull that one into balance and make clear that the two are essential. And counselors themselves must learn, like John, how to love truthfully and how to give the truth lovingly to their counselees. Now this love is not Roger's unconditional positive regard. There's no love in that. That's cold. He calls it warm, but it's cold because he makes no commitments. He'll only reflect back to you what you say. He becomes a non-person. And he will not say, hey, right on, man. You watch John, he's going to say, right on, Gaius. No unconditional positive regard in this letter anywhere. No cold uh, attitude of becoming just simply a mirror reflecting back to people what they themselves say. Oh, it's cold, warm, but it's one of the coldest, most frustrating kinds of experiences that a human being could have. I don't know how many people who have been through the type counseling have said to me, it was utterly frustrating. I couldn't get any help out of him at all. Where's the warmth? It's not there because the Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You're not allowed to do that in Rogers because the minute you react, the minute you take a stand on whether it was good or bad and say, hey, great! Rejoicing with those who rejoice are, oh, horrible! Weeping with those who weep. The minute you do that, you evaluate. You're not to evaluate. It's to be unconditional. You're to ooze some kind of fluid out of every poor, but it's not according to truth no evaluation no truth involved it's not Rogers and then you have to speak the truth lovingly a woman once opened a counseling session with me with these words I'm a murderer I aborted my child how would you respond to that opening sentence what would you say to a woman who has said that to you She was a murderer, yet she was deeply grieved over what she had done. Would you wallow with her in some kind of self-pity which she was feeling? Would you come down on her hard and say to her, You beast! Neither one of those is the proper response, you see. You have to come at this point as a counselor with love in the truth speaking the truth in love saying to her in a hundred different ways that's really sad taking her seriously about her sin yes you're right you are a murderer but you know so was david And there's hope in the fact that you recognize it as murder, as sin. Because, like David, you can be forgiven of even that sin. Thank God that you see it as sin. Now let's talk about how that sin can be cleansed and you can have a whole new life that begins to honor God and is a blessing to other people. You don't minimize her sin. You acknowledge it for what it is. You don't try to build up her self-esteem. She doesn't deserve to have any self-esteem over what she did. But you speak the truth lovingly, hopefully. And you help her. If you go either direction, coming down hard on her with some kind of a meat axe when she's already Realizing and recognizing her sin, you've gone all off base. If you just try to help her by all these sympathetic responses, not acknowledging her sin or recognizing it for what it is, you haven't helped her either. There's a balance. There's this biblical balance. And like Dave said earlier, stole everything I had to say, All areas of life fall into this framework. That's why it was important for John to set the theme at the outset. He would be shy on neither side of the balance. And the letter itself is a masterpiece of balance between these two things. A masterpiece. Don't forget it. I'm not going to mention this much in the future, but don't forget this point, and don't forget this background. And notice as we go through how that comes out. A little of this, a little of that, and how one is said but in this spirit, and how this is said in that spirit, and how these two blend together in all times. And let me say one last word. Every counselor you will ever counsel will know when you're on one side or the other and not down the middle he won't be able to articulate it he won't be able to say to you hey, you need more love hey, you need more truth well these two things are out of balance but he'll sense something's wrong That's your test to learn from John the Presbyter how to blend these two in perfect balance not just in this letter but everything John and the other apostles write but surely this is one of the great things that came from the wisdom of that old man in Christ. The need to set this theme right at the outset, whom I love in the truth. Okay, we're going to take just a half-minute break. Everybody stand. now we come to verse 2. what are you laughing about told you that there's hard candy here to suck there is you just read John's writings now this isn't you you read the book of the gospel of John you read first John you read second John on truth and on love and if you think we've even begun to lick at that hard candy you don't know what you're talking about we've just begun to taste it let alone suck it all to the very bottom there is plenty of more in there to get out of those two in John just in John without going outside of John's writing and you don't even have to go to the book of Revelation which was written much earlier in life before 70 AD now, this is all his later stuff the gospel and the epistle and the two letters three letters well even two letters plus the epistle all right now John goes on so we must eventually He says, Beloved, I pray that all your interests may prosper and that you may have good health in the same way that your soul is prospering. Now he begins to talk to Gaius. Here is the first. We've had the introduction. Here comes the first uh, of the three sections of the main part of the book, of the body of the book. This is the first mountain peak. We haven't gotten to the swamp. We haven't gotten to the second mountain peak, but we're on the first mountain top. We're beginning to climb that mountain because he's now talking about Gaius and to Gaius all in one. And we're learning about Gaius and what John is saying to him in this situation. And he says, he says, uh, beloved or loved one, I pray that all your interests may prosper. Now, in one sense, there's nothing unusual about the form of his greeting. If you pick up the uh, two volumes of papyri in the Loeb Classical Library, you know those little green jobs. How many know the Loeb Classical Library? Horrendous. One, two, three, four, five. Five people in this room know. How many of you are preachers? Let me see how many preachers we got. Whoa. What did they teach you in Sunday? Loeb Classical Library is something you should learn about. Loeb Classical Library is one of those great crib-type libraries. One side has the Greek or the Latin, the other side has the English translation right across from each other. That's handy. And there are two volumes of papyri from the New Testament period. If you pick up those two volumes of papyri, you'll find... In P1680, Oxyrhynchus, this, I pray to God that you are prosperous, and successful and in good health. Very close to what John's reading, Same basic words. You'll find in papyri number 292, Oxyrhynchus, Before all else, I pray that you may have health and the best of success. Basically those same two words. The same two words you find here in this uh, uh, here and here and so in one sense there's nothing unusual about this letter because it's using the form of a letter of that time just as John and Paul and all of them use many other forms of writing of their day such as beginning the letter with the name of the person writing it that was a form in that day. We happen to use a different form. We're stupid enough to put the letter, the name of the person writing at the end so you have to go through 20 pages, find out who it was that wrote this thing. But they had the smart idea of putting everybody's name at the beginning. So you start out by John, you put out with Paul, or you start out with the elder, or whoever it was, to beloved Gaius. So you know everything, right in the first sentence at the beginning. It was a form. It's the way they did it in those days. The way all the rest of these letters you'll see in the papyrite, which has a bunch of these letters in it, the way all these things uh, start out. So there's nothing unusual about this letter in that respect, nor was there anything unusual about praying for someone's best interests, that things would go well with him, that he would prosper, that uh, uh, materially and physically he would do well and succeed, and that he would be in good health. Those were two things that you find in many of these letters, and I mentioned two of them for you and just read two of them to show you how this was a common form. Well, then, uh, you ask, are John's words merely meaningless form, like our greetings when somebody says, uh, Oh, how are you? And he doesn't expect an organ recital, my back aches, I've got bunions on six toes, a hangnail on my little finger, and a kink in my neck. Now, that isn't what he expects when he says, how are you? It's just a form we use, and uh, we expect him to say, regardless of all those things, oh, fine. (laughs) That's what we expect, and we're kind of taken back when somebody begins to recite all these things to us. Uh, Is that what we have here, just mere convention? No! No, 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 no. We shall see in a few moments how John takes a form that had become a dead form... And consciously, with great care, puts new life in that form or resurrects it from the dead and gives it Christian meaning. Well, if there's uh, nothing unusual basically about the form, is there something unusual about his prayer? I pray, not wish as the King James has it, but it means pray. Concerning all things, that is in all aspects of your life, the peri means concerning... uh, (sighs) right here, this peri, or we'll pray about or concerning all things, that you may prosper, be successful, and be in health. This, too, is very close to the usual form, as I pointed out. For some Christians, however, this may seem unusual for some Christians today, because some so divorce our spiritual lives from our physical and material and financial, economic side of life, In some sort of a sin, almost, for a Christian to prosper or succeed in anything other than spiritual life. The fact of the matter is, is that John kept both in balance. See that great balance of John here once again. Now, for some Christians, talk about uh, prospering and succeeding materially and physically... Sounds like uh, Reverend Ike, Norman Vincent Peale, or Bob Schulter all rolled up in one. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. The false idea that sickness, or especially poverty, and failure are necessary for holiness is just that, a false idea. I think it originated, it must have originated, don't you think, preachers? in that statement keep those preachers pure and you'll keep poor and you'll keep them spiritual keep them poor and you'll keep them pure even if the people don't express it in those terms they certainly do express it at the congregational meeting when they set the salary (laughs) actually what it does to keep the preacher poor is not keep him pure but it usually makes him ineffectual and it makes him an embarrassment to the congregation because he has to wear threadbare clothing and he can't keep the grounds of his house in very good shape and then everybody's embarrassed about the preacher not realizing that this philosophy of keep him poor and you'll keep him pure is behind it. Well, that whole concept is unbiblical. Here, material things and physical welfare are the concern. And that's what John prays for in Gaius' life, that he might prosper materially, economically, and that he might be in good health. Now, we usually pray about good health, but it's that first one that becomes such a sticker for us. You know, when you really love another person, you care about that whole person and all of his affairs. You care. In second, uh, the second chapter of Philippians, we're told something about what love really is like. When it says to put the interests of another person before your own interests. Be more concerned about his welfare than your own. To think of him as better than yourself. You know when you really know that you're putting the other guy's interests before your own? You know when you know that? When you've prayed that he'll get a raise at work and he did, and you didn't, and you're happy. You can pray for Bill to get a raise, and he does, and you don't, and you're still happy. Instead of saying, why didn't I get one too? Sorry, he got one as long as I get one too. Then you know that you're really caring for other people. You know, it's time we did pray for such matters as this. We're always screaming, where's the money in the church? We need money for this, need money for that once the last time we pray anybody else would get a raise but ourselves. We can't support the whole church ourselves. So let's pray and all get some more money. So there'll be plenty of way to go around and do all these need to be done. John prayed for the financial welfare as well as the physical welfare of this man. Yeah, yeah, it's not sin. To prosper. You know, in, uh, in Timothy, 1 Timothy, that last chapter, we read about rich men's Bible classes. You ever read about that? Well, someday read about it in the last chapter. It says, Teach the rich. And then it tells them what to teach, it tells you what to teach them and what they're to do with their money and so on. But see, that's telling you to have a rich man's Bible clip. That is, he's to be instructed from the Word about his riches. Now, when's the last time you ever did that? Well, you say, I don't have any rich men. Well, where have you, what are you even praying for? You've got to pray for their welfare financially so that you can get some rich men so that you can fulfill 1 Timothy 5 and 6. You know, you can't, you can't do everything the Bible tells you to do until you get some rich men. You just can't do it because you're the whole rich men's Bible class. Okay. <laughs> That's just a little sidelight. Now, it's true that God may use poverty to teach holiness, but um, he can also teach holiness through riches, which is even harder. Sometimes it's a lot easier to be holy when you're poor. You haven't got any other place to turn. The rich man has to learn not to trust in his riches, which is perhaps even harder. That's why maybe Jesus said it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle. And I don't think that has anything to do with camel stooping down uh, under that uh, uh, a rich man to go into heaven rather than for a camel to go to the eye of a needle. It's not anything to do with the door. That just takes away from the whole absurd image that Christ wanted to give to us the humorous image of a, of a real needle with a camel going through it you know threading your needle with a camel's tail and then pulling the whole camel through along with the tail I, I, that's marvelous that's marvelous this nonsense about a Dura that's nothing to that I don't know where anybody ever got that crazy idea. <laughs> but he didn't say it was impossible he said it was harder but he said it was a really bad test <laughs> really tough you know I guess you could get the whole camel through the needle one way or another, but it's going to be rough on the camel. <laughs> also going to be rough on the rich man. Let me tell you, it's not going to be easy on him. You've got to learn a lot through it. If you can get that rich man through that eye of the needle, it's going to be a real experience for him. <laughs> well, at any rate, to be biblical, we must pray and work for our counselor Lee's wealth and prosperity in all things, as John says, Pray concerning all things, there it is, uh, pray peripontone, all things, concerning all aspects of his material welfare, that he may be successful. Now, that means your counseling, when you deal with people, doesn't stop at just getting him in some kind of a relationship spiritually with God or with his neighbor. It means you're going to counsel him about such matters as his financial affairs and how to handle them properly before God and his neighbor and how to even enter into certain deals that he might have to enter into from a Christian perspective using the kind of teaching that we find in 1 Timothy toward the end of that book and so on. So our counseling gets us into all sorts of interesting things. But now, If there's nothing unusual about the form of the greeting and there's nothing unusual about the form of this prayer, why do I say that John takes an old form and gives it new life? What is the unusual feature in this salutation, in this greeting, in this form that we see that is also in the papyri of the day? There is something remarkable about the second half of the greeting. John goes on as though it were just a normal greeting until he says these words in the same way that your soul is prospering. You won't find anything like that in the papara. You can search from stem to stern, and there isn't a whisper of anything like that. John has taken a usual greeting. And he has given it a new twist so that the whole business comes alive. And what a remarkable thing he has said! This is an outstanding statement about Gaius. Outstanding! Remarkable! What is it? Do you get it? He's saying, John's saying, Gaius, I want you to be as well off materially, financially, and physically as you are spiritually. What an astounding statement about any man. Yet John could make that statement as the presbyteros, the one who has for all these years seen many Christian men and women go and come. He could say, as I've seen him, you're one of those mountaintop men. You're right up there on the top camp. I wish that you were as well off materially and physically. I wish you had as much money, and I wish you were as, as physically well as you are spiritually prosperous. He was affluent spiritually. He was in a pink of health spiritually what a remarkable person Gaius must have been now if John were to be here today examining you or me or our counselees sticking his spiritual thermometer underneath our spiritual tons would he say that we are healthy spiritually and he wished that we were physically as healthy as we are spiritually the way he did with Gaius or looking at the thermometer, would he say, ah, white out! We'll send for the rescue team. He might have to. If he were reading the ledgers of our spiritual life, what would he see on those spiritual ledgers, black or red ink? He'd see so much red ink. In some cases, he'd say, File for spiritual bankruptcy. He was a man about whom, however, he could say just the opposite. I wish that you physically and in health and materially were as well off as you are spiritually. Here is a man of God. Gaius. Let's learn from this man of God. Let's learn from this man to whom John can not only call him the beloved one, but say such things as this and yet not turn Gaius' head. Let's learn. What's he go on to say? Well, he goes on to say there are reasons why I say these things about you, Gaius. He says, I say this, verse 3, because I was delighted. When the brothers came and testified about your truth, that you are walking in the truth, and then he says in verse four, "Nothing pleases me more than to hear that my own children—not my children, but in the Greek it's ta techno is it here? Place? Let's see, yeah. Uh, hard to see it, this think where are we? What verse? Oh, yeah, four. Right. Okay, ta ma Techno. The Ma there means my own children. It's putting the stress on it. He says um, that you are walking in the truth pleases me more than anything else because nothing pleases me as much as to hear that my own children are walking in the truth. Now, what's John Say. Well... <clears throat> He's saying there is nothing like spiritual parenthood. That is life's most joyful experience, barring none. Barring none. For the Christian, he says, this is what pleases me most of all. Once I became a Christian and that great experience was passed, then all other experiences pale into insignificance in comparison with this one. Now, here's Apres presbyteros reflecting back on his whole experience and speaking in absolute terms. You say, well, maybe he's just exaggerating a little for this letter. No. Once more, he uses the same phraseology, only one other place in all his writings, and it's found in John 15 13, where he has the same phraseology, the same order, the same order, nothing else pleases me more than, is what he says here, and... There he says, greater love has no man than this. That's an absolute, that he lay down his life for another. Nothing could exceed that. That's an absolute. That is the greatest love that anyone could conceivably or possibly have for another, to give his life for another. And that's the same phraseology that he uses here, nothing pleases me more than this. Exactly the same kind of phraseology. So we know from the other passage that he is using an absolute here. It's an absolute form. John is reflecting back as how Presbyteros on all of his experience as a Christian and as a Christian leader in the faith, and he says, one thing stands out as the most joyful experience of all as a Christian. Once I became a Christian, nothing else was like this.